Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. For today's classic, um, because we have been talking about a lot of the women spotlighted in this episode, we wanted to bring back one about abolitionist heroines. So yeah, we've been in our episodes on women organizing and in our recent and or upcoming depending on when you listen to this (laughs) book club about uh, Unapologetic by Charlene A. Carruthers. We touched on it there as well. And the importance of of telling these stories and making sure that we tell these stories um, for everyone, especially for younger people to hear. Right. Right. So without further ado, please enjoy this classic episode. Yay! Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And we're doing this episode as a celebration of Juneteenth, which is the oldest known celebration commemorating the end of slavery in the U.S. that took place on June 19th, 1865. Right, and this is when Union soldiers, led by Major General Gordon Granger, brought the news of emancipation to Galveston, Texas. And you're thinking, wait, I'm not listening to a history podcast. What's going on? Well, we want to talk about not only the celebration of Juneteenth, but we want to talk about what led up to the end of slavery and to emancipation. And women had a huge role in that. Exactly. Um, So just to give you a little bit of a timeline just to drive home the fact that it took so long, which is horrifying to think about as an American, it took so long for us to finally uproot slavery in the United States. Anti-slavery sentiment began during colonial times. Uh, the Mennonites actually were speaking out against it in the late 17th century. And then fast forward to 1773, and we have Phyllis Wheatley, who becomes the first African-American to publish a book, and it's called Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral. Yeah, and I mean, not not the first African-American woman, just alone, just the first African-American person to publish a book. Um, and it's not until the next year that the Continental Congress adopts a resolution calling for a ban on all American participation in the international slave trade, and that would go back and forth. You would have... Different states like South Carolina reopening trade, international slave trade with uh, people in Africa. Um, but if we move forward to 1800, so the turn of the century, we see kind of the birth of a few separate movements that are all, well, I shouldn't say separate because they're all pretty interrelated. But you have the Second Great Awakening, which is a wave of religious fervor that ends up sparking t- the temperance movement the abolition movement and the suffrage movement. They're all so tied in together. What's the common denominator? Women. 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 Yeah. Um, this is sort of, if you, if you listened to the podcast earlier this year, we did a semi two parter on Susan B. Anthony and the suffrage movement and then looking at black women's role in the suffrage movement. And there is some overlap with this, but this is really kind of the precursor 
to those ep- episodes on suffrage because it is the abolition movement that first engages women in these kinds of activist roles. Right. And so it's not until 1863 that we finally get the Emancipation Proclamation. And in January 1865, the 13th Amendment is passed. So when you look at the fact that it took Union soldiers until June of 1865 to get the word to people in Texas, I mean, that that was a six month lag in slavery finally ending. And so because of that very strange, murky, staggered ending of this institution, Juneteenth is sort of a more general name for just the period during which slavery finally ended. And it took so much concerted effort to uproot it. And like you said, Caroline, women were incredibly influential in the abolition movement, as well as all of these reform movements of the time that also included temperance and suffrage. And if you look um, up north, you have middle and upper class women, including free black women who got involved in abolition, particularly starting in the 1830s. Right. Like that period, about 30 years before the Civil War is when things really start to get heated. This is when you see a lot of abolitionist newspapers coming up, people speaking out, both men and women, white and black. And so the fact that these women were getting involved, uh, PBS points out that suffragists owe a substantial debt to the anti-slavery movement, which had served as the most important training ground for its leaders and the most important repository for ideas of sexual as as well as racial emancipation in the decades before the Civil War. And it's a similar pattern that you see, too, if you fast forward to the 50s and 60s, how the civil rights movement really starts to fuel what becomes second wave feminism. Um, But speaking back now to the antebellum years, the abolitionist materials that were targeted at women really appealed to their sympathetic feelings as wives and mothers, basically like reaching out to them on behalf of slave women who might be separated from their husbands and children. Right. And so here's that that appeal to women's familial ties and their their primary role in society as a wife and mother to say, hey, but these are women, too. It's a very early use of gender to try to convince white people that enslaving black people was wrong. It was also a technique used a lot by anti-slavery writers who favored slower changes to the system as opposed to the more radical abolitionists who we'll talk about in a little bit. And when it comes to this intersection of gender and race at the time, it does get kind of complicated. Um, you have, and this is a quote from the website U.S. History Scene, you have Sojourner Truth and William Lloyd Garrison, obviously like abolitionists of the time, and the pro-slavery and anti-slavery writers operating in an America where gender denoted one's place, rights, privileges, and status, and where conservative gendered hierarchies were jealously and fearlessly guarded. And they were acutely aware of it. I mean, all of this, it was like marketing in Mm -hmm. a way of like, okay, we need to appeal to your uh, feminine instinct, your maternal instinct, so that you can back this cause. Yeah, the thing that absolutely fascinated me about this was just how gender dynamics, gender norms, gender expectations were all used by both pro-slavery and anti-slavery advocates to suit their own purposes. I mean, gender was politicized by both whites and blacks. 
And Sojourner Truth, for instance, used it in her Ain't I a Woman speech, as did William Lloyd Garrison when he called all male slaves true men, because gender, being a man, was linked with certain rights, and it was linked with personhood, and it was linked with manhood, which had a very specific meaning. And for women, that equated with family, and all of that together equals rights, because they're using gender. The people who were opposing slavery were using gender to say... Give these these women are women. They deserve to have a family. These men are men. They should be at the head of that family. Exactly. And meanwhile, you also have pro-slavery Southerners also politicizing gender for their own purposes, lumping together slavery with their anti-suffrage stance. Essentially, this logic of, well, if you can't control your slaves, then you won't be able to control your wife. So you need to keep both of those both, unfortunately, literally and figuratively on lockdown. Right. And this this basically kept poor whites who didn't even own slaves in support of slavery, too, because how do you tell a man who doesn't own slaves? He's not a part of this this institution or the system. How do you convince him that slavery needs to stay put? You tell him that if we can't maintain control of our slaves, then our women are just going to be running around crazy, too. And speaking of this gender hierarchy, there were also the anti-slavery activists like some Garrisonians who would disambiguate between the quote unquote unnatural order of slavery that, like you said, prevented African-American families from being able to have like male head of household, women with children with the quote unquote natural hierarchy of gender, essentially arguing, okay, well, we must free slaves to also help restore that natural hierarchy. Right. Yeah. When Garrison's arguing about manhood, it's very interesting because, you know, if you're if you're marketing something, if you're trying to sell an idea, you have to prey on the social structure of the time, the mores of the time. And the patriarchy was definitely alive and well around the Civil War. And so when Garrison and others talk about male slaves' manhood, it's definitely a loaded term, especially because being a man was linked with having authority over women. And so if you ended slavery, you would restore the rightful gender balance. Because when you look at a country in which slavery exists, there's this just untenable weird tiered system where there's white men above white women, but white women are above black men. And then black men can't be above black women because of they're enslaved. And so there are a lot of good arguments out there for ending slavery and a lot of people who are passionate about doing so. But some of the arguments that they wanted to use to achieve this were questionable. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just uh, it's definitely a product of his time of its time, because you also see that just because men were pro abolition did not mean that they were also pro suffrage or at least pro women's vocal and public involvement in the abolition movement, because there was actually, for example, a gender split that happened in the 1830s on the heels of women's increased involvement in abolition, which led to, in 1839, anti-Garrisonians, Lewis and Arthur Tappan, splitting off from William Lloyd Garrison's New England Anti-Slavery Society to form the American and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society, which prohibited women from participating publicly. They were fine with women hanging out in the background of kind of doing their thing, staying in their own 
female uh, anti-slavery societies because those existed are staying in their sewing circles and, and, you know, organizing in that way. But the the mixing of the two also uh, ruffled some feathers. It sure did. In May 1838, for example, Pennsylvania Hall was burned down the day after the Anti-Slavery Convention of American Women held their second national meeting. Yeah, we brought this up, I believe, in our episode on Susan B. Anthony. And people were so outraged that women were getting up on stage to speak publicly about suffrage. And this was also a group of both white and black women who were together. And so this mob essentially attacked Pennsylvania Hall. The women were able to escape. But then the next day it was burned down. But that didn't stop them. I mean, this was also just fueling the suffrage movement as well. But that certainly didn't stop them because... As we've mentioned a number of times now on the podcast, it was this kind of gender based discrimination that women face, particularly during the abolition movement that led to the Seneca Falls Convention, which kicked off first wave feminism. Because in 1840, you have the World Anti-Slavery Convention barring Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott and a few other women from having a seat on the convention floor. And so they were like, you know what? We will do our own thing. Yeah, doing your own thing. Feminism. Um, but it's not just the white men who are trying to keep the white women from participating in the abolition movement as active advocates. Black men were not necessarily pleased about black women's involvement either. Many wanted them to stay behind the scenes. And we're not necessarily talking about uh, African-Americans who were enslaved. We're talking about freed people up in the Northeast, for instance. A lot of them accused Black women protesters in New York, I think they, they were protesting something going on in court of bringing everlasting shame and remorse on the community. There were just so many men, black and white, who basically said, we cannot accomplish anything with you women in the way. You're hurting our cause. Yeah, I mean, because at the time, the very idea of women being out and demonstrating in public was a major violation of their appropriate normative gender role and and the whole uh, protest in New York was related to this case where I think two slaves had escaped to the north and because of the fugitive slave law that was enacted they were then being they were they'd been captured and they were going to be sent back and so these women came out to protest that and the fact that their husbands were so outraged by that only speaks to how deeply entrenched these gender issues were at the time as deeply entrenched as these abolition issues happening. Um, so let's talk, though, more about women abolitionists and, and highlight some women you've probably heard of, but also some women you haven't heard of, such as British abolitionist revolutionary, who I hadn't heard of before researching for this episode. Uh, this woman named Elizabeth Hayrick, who in 1824 wrote a pamphlet called Immediate, Not Gradual Abolition, which was the first widely circulated assertion of what was called immediatism. Essentially the idea that, hey, you need to free all slaves immediately. Don't do this gradually. We've got to do it all at once. Yeah, and if you'll remember from our Susan B. Anthony podcast, uh, it was this conflict, this tension between the desire to do it gradually and the desire to do it immediately that caused splits within the suffrage movement and within the women's rights movement itself. 
But abolitionist Wendell Phillips, who, side note, did not join the abolition movement until he witnessed uh, William Lloyd Garrison being attacked by a mob. But Wendell Phillips said that little progress was made in the anti-slavery cause until Hayrick saw and publicly acknowledged the principle of immediate and universal emancipation. Then that great anti-slavery truth flew through the land, shooting arrows into every heart. Now... (laughs) That is quite a statement to make, but that happened in 1824. What I think often goes untalked about in this history of abolition is the work on a smaller but no less significant scale of black women, particularly in the North, who were organizing, who were developing these centers of female anti-slavery activity, typically centered around churches. Right. Yeah. Margaret Washington wrote about this for the Gilder Lehrman Institute, and she talks about black churches and meeting houses being these centers of activity for black women and how the the domestic sphere sort of came in and, and interacted quite well with abolition advocacy. She talked about how black women would organize sales of goods made or food grown with free labor as opposed to uh, slave labor holding sewing circles to make clothes for people fleeing slavery and raising money for Freedom's Journal, the nation's first black newspaper. And when William Lord Garrison, white abolitionist, proposed the idea for his pro-abolition paper, The Liberator, he received strong financial backing from these black women who used their organization to help fundraise for initiatives like this. Right. And so we did mention earlier in the podcast that the 1830s was like a huge sort of pressure cooker moment in history leading up to abolition. And we are going to get into the 1830s when we come right back from a quick break. So we've been moving through this abolition timeline and we're now into the 1830s, which is when things really start happening. By this point, you have thousands of women involved in the movement to abolish slavery. We're writing articles for abolitionist papers, circulating abolitionist pamphlets, and also circulating, signing, and delivering petitions to Congress calling for abolition. And on top of that, you also still have these kinds of anti-slavery sewing circles and that free produce movement tied into the domesticity aspect of this movement of sort of, you know, women doing what they could in their roles at the time to contribute to abolition. Well, so let's get into some of these names that you may or may not know. A lot of them were unfamiliar to me. And so we want to give you some. We obviously can't give you all or this podcast would be more like a book on tape. But in 1831, Boston's Maria Stewart, a middle class free black woman, became the first woman of color to publicly speak on political issues. And she ended up setting the oratorical stage, basically, for Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, who was a poet and teacher, Sojourner Truth, and Harriet Tubman. So there are two names that are much more familiar. Yeah, and speaking of Stuart, and sort of from the 1820s when we were talking about the organizing that black women were doing, she got her start, her initial platform, with Boston's African-American Female Intelligence Society, one of those groups that they had started up, and that was where she got comfortable talking in front of groups of people. Um, and then in 1832, we have Maria W. Chapman, who helped organize the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society and also began editing William Lord Garrison's paper, The Liberator. 
1838, she spoke with Angelina Grimke, who we'll talk about in a moment, at the Anti-Slavery Convention of American Women in Philadelphia. Right. And a year later, she wrote the pamphlet Right and Wrong in Massachusetts that argued differences in opinion about women's suffrage were directly tied to divisions among abolitionists. And then in 1833, backing up a little, Lucretia Mott founds the first female anti-slavery society. Lucretia Mott is a Quaker. She is a member of this group that is has been part of the abolition movement from the get-go. Well, not the get-go. They weren't as early as the Mennonites on it. But the Quakers very early on adopted uh, resolutions saying that we will not own slaves. It's not the right thing to do. She was also a feminist who lectured on a number of reformer causes. And she attended the founding convention of the American Anti-Slavery Society in 1833. And then established its women's auxiliary, the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. And of course, she, along with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, helped organize the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848 after they were not allowed a seat at the World Anti-Slavery Convention in London. Um, and still in 1833, I don't know what was in the water in 1833, <laughs> but it was it set a fire in your belly, apparently, because you also have Prudence Crandall, who was a white Quaker school teacher in Canterbury, Connecticut, who ended up transforming her school into one for black girls because she got a letter from uh, this uh, parents of I think she was a teenage black girl who just wanted better schooling. And so she said, sure. Have her come to school. That's totally fine. And the townspeople flipped out. And that was an awakening for her of like, okay, well, you know what I'm going to do? I am going to uh, move and also start a school specifically for this group because y'all are crazy. Yeah, well, you know what? And she persevered and people were harassing her. They were throwing things at her. The only thing that stopped her and made her actually like move away completely the town's residents up and destroyed her house in 1834. They Pennsylvania hauled her. I mean, people were... Uh, uh, it was intense back then. It I'll, say, was. I'll say that, Caroline. Well, that same year, 1833, Lydia Marie Child publishes an appeal in favor of that class of Americans called Africans, which included a history of slavery and demanded equality for blacks, both in education and employment. It was the first book length work of its kind. And Child, we should mention, was an abolitionist author, obviously, who wrote anti-slavery pamphlets and also edited the National Anti-Slavery Standard from 1841 to 1849. And around this time, we also have to talk about the Grimke sisters, Angelina and Sarah, who ended up, they, they actually, this is, it's kind of a fascinating story because they grew up in a Charleston, South Carolina home that had a number of slaves. And Sarah, the older sister, was like, hey, this is so messed up. I'm going to move to Philadelphia and become a Quaker, which she did in 1821. And then Angelina followed in her footsteps and through, I guess, becoming a Quaker and living that lifestyle, they really became active abolitionists, Angelina more so than Sarah, who kind of retired sort of early on into a quieter life. But Angelina wrote a couple of books and also spoke out a lot. She was actually the first American woman to address a legislative body, the Boston State House, in the late 1830s and also spoke at Pennsylvania Hall the day before it was torched. Man. 
Well, so in 1849, this is when Harriet Tubman makes her escape from slavery. She was born Araminta Ross, and she ended up guiding some 300 fellow runaway slaves to freedom as one of the most famous and successful conductors on the Underground Railroad. And, you know, it's it's important to mention that Margaret Washington article for the Gilder Lehrman Institute also touches on how important women were. Whether they were out there guiding people through the woods or not, they were often the ones who were at home, opening those late night knocks, letting people into their homes to hide or get food or get clothing. But so Tubman, in addition to all of the stuff she's doing for the Underground Railroad, also worked for Union forces in South Carolina as a scout, cook and laundress. And after the war, she ended up opening the Harriet Tubman Home for Indigent Aged Negroes. And I would just like to say that she was doing all of this Underground Railroad work and the scouting work when there was a price on her head. People knew who she was and knew what she was doing. And there was essentially a bounty out for her. But she just kept on doing it, doing the right thing. Um, and by the time Harriet Tubman made her escape in 1849, Sojourner Truth, another very familiar name, has been speaking for a while. Um, and, and her name, her, her star essentially is, is starting to rise within the abolition movement. And by the 1850s, she's pretty famous because she's, you know, speaking at suffrage movements as well as abolition events. And, you know, obviously is one of the most famous female African-American abolitionists of the 19th century. She was freed from slavery in 1827 and adopted the name Sojourner Truth in 1843. And she was wooed by white suffragists, as we talked about in the Susan B. Anthony episode, to get involved with women's rights. And, her, you know, she has the famous line of, ain't I a woman? And it was actually Frances Dana Gage, a white woman and suffrage activist, who wrote that line that Sojourner Truth became famous for. And it was based on a speech that Sojourner Truth had given. Yeah, and I mean, that that kind of blows your mind to think about because we always associate Ain't I a Woman with coming directly from Sojourner Truth. And it's not that it didn't. It's not that she never said it and that things weren't based on that, on her actual speeches. But around this time, too, you have a lot of white women most of the time putting words in the mouths of black women or publishing things for black women just to try to sort of woo the audience to their cause. And this is also wrapped up in efforts to portray both black men and women as sort of this harmless other. Like, look how wonderful they are. Don't they deserve, aren't they cute and plucky? Don't they deserve freedom? Yeah, yeah. There, there's been this question now if, in, among more contemporary historians looking back at this era and the participation of black women um, in the abolition movement, but more so within the suffrage movement. Um, and this question of whether, whether or not they were exoticized a bit for their, you know, the, the color of their skin, essentially, because there's also Harriet Beecher Stowe, author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, who we'll talk about in a second. She wrote this essay called Libyan Sybil about Sojourner Truth. And it's been criticized for, quote unquote, romantic racialism, essentially oversimplifying the black female experience and sort of using it for their own cause. Because in terms of Francis Dana Gage, you know, writing and really publicizing that ain't I a woman quote, 
that was more a bit of, uh, you know, the fact that she wanted to um, to find almost like a tagline that could resonate well among other other people to re- elevate the profile of this movement happening. Right, because there, again, is that politicization, I think I said that right, of gender and of reinforcing with your audience that you may think of these people as slaves and as less than, but they are women. This this is a woman that we're talking about, just like you or me. And so, again, sort of relying on the cultural perceptions of the day to win people to your cause. Yeah, and not to say that Sojourner Truth and others didn't have agency in their speaking engagements and in their public roles, but simply to point out the fact that You know, none of the it's like neither the abolition movement nor the suffrage movement at the time were perfect in terms of their treatment of black people. Yeah, sure. And speaking of Harriet Beecher Stowe, in 1852, she publishes Uncle Tom's Cabin. She sells 500,000 copies in the first year. And it's the most popular book of the 19th century, aside from the Bible. Yeah, and she really made very little money off of it, even though it was hugely popular, probably because... She was a woman and she got the idea, though, for writing the book after the death of a child because it got her thinking about slavery and the routine loss that would have been a part of enslaved women's lives being separated from their kids. Yeah, exactly. Well, so the following year after Uncle Tom's Cabin is published in 1853, Marianne Shad Carey who is a free writer, educator, lawyer, abolitionist, and the first black newspaper woman in North America, founded Canada's first anti-slavery newspaper, The Provincial Freeman. Yeah, she was one of the more radical abolitionists and actually fled up to Canada and encouraged people to come to Canada. Um, and her family called her the rebel because she was... So fearless in everything that she did. And fun fact, her family nicknamed her the rebel because she was so completely fearless in everything that she did. And I think she also went on to become, after all of this, as if becoming the first black newspaper woman in North America wasn't enough. She also went on to become one of the first black female lawyers in Canada or maybe in like North America altogether. Hmm. And so we started off this detailed timeline in 1773 with Phyllis Wheatley becoming the first African-American to publish a book. And we're going to now sort of tie up this timeline with 1861 with Harriet Jacobs book, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, which she published under the pen name Linda Brent, sort of bookend how much how much happened. It's like we we started at one place and sort of ended at the same place because it took yet again so long for abolition to truly happen. Yeah. And and to watch as slavery ends, you know, in 1863, you get the Emancipation Proclamation and to watch as just the fight for freedom, let alone civil rights, but just the fight for freedom ended up giving birth to all of these other movements because there were black and white, these women who believed so strongly that the institution of slavery had to end, 
but they couldn't even have a voice. They weren't even permitted to speak, to be a part of this movement. And, and to watch that as it, as it grew and snowballed into other movements is pretty yeah. incredible. Yeah. As they found their voice through abolition and, you know, started writing things and speaking publicly and organizing and even just doing things, you know, down to the level of, you know, the small, smaller sewing circles, whatever it might be, contributing in all of these different ways. It's pretty incredible to consider women's roles in abolition. The thing that breaks my heart the most, though, is that it even had to happen and that it took so long. Um, and where we leave off now in 1863 with the Emancipation Proclamation is essentially, you know, the precursor to the two previous podcasts we did earlier this year, a controversial woman on Susan B. Anthony and black women striving for suffrage because it by no means was this an unmessy process. Mm-hmm. And there was still a lot to work out because, you know, even though slavery had ended with Juneteenth, uh, there, you know, women still had very few rights. Exactly. They had they still had a long, long way to go. Yeah. So but we wanted to take this opportunity to celebrate Juneteenth, talk about some women who probably don't get talked about very often and hopefully fill in some historical or historical <laughs> gaps that might be there. Yeah, so send us your letters. We want to hear from you, especially if you have any other historical information you want to share, or if there are any other fantastic women abolition advocates out there that you think we should know about. Yeah, or if you're related to any, we want to know everything. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our new email address where you can contact us, but you can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we got a couple of messages to share with you right now, in fact. So we've got a couple of letters here about our episode on teaching and how it became women's work. I have one here from Gemma who writes, I like to listen to the podcast on my way to work and was thrilled to see a topic I feel passionate about. I'm a primary school teacher here in the UK and over here there's been a push for trying to persuade men to join the profession. Although the majority of teachers are women, I don't feel that there's a shortage of men. However, I do work in central London and can't talk for the rest of the country. I agree that focusing on the gender of the teacher in relation to learning seems irrelevant and ill-informed. If we were to consider the gender of the teacher, where would it stop? Would we have to consider what effect the religion, ethnicity, or sexuality of the teacher has? Like you said, it's far more relevant to consider the skill of the teacher. Furthermore, a child's learning is affected by a whole range of other factors. And she says, P.S. Love the show. Thanks for keeping me company whilst stuck in London traffic. I couldn't resist a bit of a London lilt there. Well, I have a letter here from a gentleman who did not provide his name talking about our teacher's episode. And he said some pertinent backstory about me. I am a full-time competitive ballroom dancer in New York, and I coach young, competitive children for the bulk of my income. I teach in the deeply conservative Russian community, and it's fascinating to see how female teachers and coaches are treated versus male coaches. If I had to generalize, and it's not hard to do so given my great wealth of, admittedly anecdotal data, 
I would say that male teachers are treated as more general authorities and better sources for the quote-unquote finer elements of dance education. Musicality, high-level technical training, and choreography, whereas women are perfect for making cosmetic changes like correcting tiny details of focus or arm stylings, working on relationship, or designing costume. While there's no inherent reason obvious to me while these generations should hold true, in my experience, they tend to. Possibly it's because ballroom dancing as a profession attracts the most heteronormativity inclined among us, yours truly excluded. On another note, I also work very occasionally with an arts residency company that uses social ballroom dancing to teach social development in New York City public schools. I'll go in occasionally as a dancing celebrity to assist female teaching artists who generally are not dancers themselves, but rather artists from another medium. I have noticed that many problem students behave much better in my presence. My theory is that they have been socialized to respect male authority, and while I enjoy capitalizing on this advantage, it annoys me to no end that very capable female teachers have to work double hard to assert their authority because of the gender norms with which so many children are raised. And then he says, thanks, love the show. By the way, I would love an episode on women in country and folk music. Well, my dear, you should listen to our Dolly Parton episode in the meantime. And thank you for writing in. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Mom Stuff at How Stuff Works is where you can email us. And for links to all of our social media and all of our blogs, videos, podcasts, including that Dolly Parton episode, there's one place to go, and it's StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 